Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is William B. Davis and you're listening to X-Files Truth. The following podcast is based on actual X-Files cases. The truth? The truth. The truth. What is the truth? of things. Well, the most advanced biological weapons. Have I been exposed? I don't know. You're gonna die. You know that? What do you care? You were trying to kill me anyway. Apologies, policy. Welcome back to X-Files Truth. Today's file is 731. X-File number classified. The plot. In West Virginia, a team of soldiers arrives at an abandoned leprosy research compound, rounding out most of the patients. One patient, Escalante, hides beneath a trap door during the arrival and follows the group to a secluded field nearby. He watches as the soldiers shoot the other patients, including apparent alien-human hybrids, into a mass grave. After jumping on the top of a moving train, Mulder loses his cell phone breaking contact with Scully. When questioned by Scully, X tells her to analyze the implant, saying that it will give her answers about the train and Melissa's murder. I want to know what's on that train. It doesn't matter now. Our government is operating a secret railroad. They put something on that train in West Virginia, something living. What more is there to know? What the Japanese have to do with it? How a man named Ishimaru is involved? That I don't know. 
Don't tell me you don't know you smoke somebody. There are limits to my knowledge. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. What were you gonna do? Shoot me? Just like the men that shot your sister. You know them too? You wanna know what's on that train? Who killed your sister? You find out what they put in your neck. The implant. It holds more than I could ever tell you. Maybe everything you need to know. Meanwhile, Mulder enters the train and finds that the secret rail car is quarantined and protected by a security system. He searches for Zama, enlisting the train conductor for help. In Zama's compartment, they find handwritten journals in Japanese. Elsewhere on the train, the red-haired man intercepts and strangles Zama. Scully sees Pendril, who tells her that the implant contains highly advanced technology that can replicate the brain's memory functions and enable someone to know a person's very thoughts. The manufacturer of the chip was Zama, who created the implant at the West Virginia compound. Scully travels there, meeting a group of deformed patients who have eluded the death squads. Escalante tells her that the patients were experimented on by Zama, who departed long ago. Since then, the death squads have set out to massacre them. Escalante shows her the mass grave, but is killed when soldiers arrive to capture Scully. She's brought before the first elder of the syndicate. Mulder returns to the rail car, seeing its door ajar. An alien-human test subject is locked in a room inside. The red-haired man attacks Mulder, causing the conductor to lock them both in the car. The red-haired man claims to work for the NSA and that a bomb in the car was triggered after he gained entry with Zama's passcode. Put your hands in the air! You have no idea what you're dealing with here. Well, maybe you should have filled me in before you tried to kill me. Now, who are you? No. Who are you? Answer me! I work for the National Security Agency. The NSA? Since when do they start issuing you guys piano wire instead of guns? Since we learned there's a bomb on this train. There's something on this train, but it's not a bomb. Throw that here. This car is wired to an explosive device. It armed automatically when I entered the car. Why? Because of what's in that room. Because if the man responsible for it couldn't get it out of the country, he would rather kill it than let it live. So you killed him? The only humane alternative, given the circumstances. Put your hands in the air. This bomb could be wired to anything in the car. Smallest concussion could set it off. If you use that weapon, you take your chances. I'll take my chances. Mulder doesn't believe him, but is called by Scully on the red-haired man's cell phone. Scully, who was with the first elder in a similar rail car, 
tells Mulder that unwitting subjects, including herself, were operated on by Zama in the secret railway, with the alien abduction theory used as a smokescreen. She also confirms that a bomb is in the car and believes that its quarantined patient is infected with hemorrhagic fever. She fears that thousands will die from the disease if the car explodes. I'd like to speak with Miss Scully alone. How did you know my name? I know most everything about you, Dana. What are you talking about? I think you know. Who are you? What is this place? This was one of the most frightening places on the earth. A place where society sent its monsters to live in shame and isolation. Now their disease is all but conquered. Science has eliminated thousands of years of misery. I've seen your methods of elimination. What happened to the man who was with me in the forest? What about the people who are in this room? They had been exposed. Exposed to what? The same thing all these people have been exposed to. Victims of an inhuman project run by a man named Sama. You mean Ishimaru? You hid him here after the war. He stayed here and he continued his experiments. The ruler of the world is no longer the country with the bravest soldiers, but the greatest scientists. Unfortunately, Ishimaru began to conduct his work in secret not sharing with those who'd risk much in giving him his asylum. What was he exposing these people to? Terrible things. What kinds of things? Have I been exposed? I don't know. Mulder finds the bomb in the ceiling. He has the car disconnected from the rest of the train on a remote rail siding. Mulder then questions the red-haired man who says that the quarantined patient is immune to biological warfare. Zama had tried to sneak the patient out of the country, but the government would rather see it destroyed than let their research fall into Japanese hands. The red-haired man was sent to kill them both. Mulder, however, believes that the patient is an alien-human hybrid. They're not going to come, are they? I said you were making a mistake. Tell me something. You got on this train to kill Dr. Zama, then what? What were your orders then? Who are you protecting? Unless that bomb is as phony as you are, we both got about half an hour to live. Is that part of the plan? They don't make provisions for saving my life. Well, what about that thing locked back there? What provisions were made for saving its life? I don't know. I wasn't expected to fail. You know what it is, don't you? You're gonna die for that thing. Is it important enough to die for? What is it, a plague carrier? A leper? We're both gonna die in here. The difference is I'm gonna die quickly. As an employee of the National Security Agency, you should know that a gunshot wound to the stomach is probably the most painful and the slowest way to die. But I'm not a very good shot. And when I miss, I tend to miss low. It's a weapon. A weapon? What kind of a weapon? Ask yourself, my friend. What could be more valuable than Star Wars? More valuable than the atomic bomb? Or the most advanced biological weapons? 
A standing army immune to the effects of those weapons. That's what Dr. Zama did, didn't he? He came up with an immunity to those weapons. And he was trying to smuggle that thing back to his own country to share the science, only our government isn't in the mood to share, right? They've been doing experiments since World War II, tests on innocent civilians. But Zama succeeded where the others had failed. And that thing in there, that's no innocent civilian. It's not a leper either. It's an alien-human hybrid, isn't it? Then again, if that were true, you'd have expected someone would have been here by now to save it. With the bomb approaching detonation time, Scully is able to determine the railway's car exit code from the videotape that she saw with Mulder earlier. Mulder successfully unlocks the door, but he's knocked unconscious by the red-haired man. As the red-haired man is about to leave, X appears and shoots him. Realizing that the bomb is about to explode and that there's not enough time to both save Mulder and secure the quarantined patient, X decides to save Mulder. After briefly looking through a small window to see the alien-human hybrid, X exits while carrying the still unconscious Mulder shortly before the bomb explodes. After recovering from his injuries, Mulder attempts to find information on the railway car, but he's unable to do so. Scully returns the journal Mulder found on the car, but Mulder realizes that it's a rewritten substitute. Meanwhile, the real journal is translated in a shadowy room as the cigarette-smoking man watches. Hand in your field report. And now for my field report for 731. 731 is an excellent episode. Here we get a good example of how things are not always as they seem. The X-Files does this a lot. You'll see lights in the night sky, and they turn out to be helicopters. In this one, we see a small alien in a silver suit, and that winds up being a leprosy patient being transferred in an oxygen suit. NSA agents are really men in black sometimes. And we've been thinking all along that Scully was taken by aliens on a spaceship, but it's really a secret railroad system where the doctors did experiments. And I forgot to mention last episode, Nisei, there was an X-File number on the folder that the Japanese diplomat was carrying. It was number 76415, and it's an unknown case. Also, I really love how the X-Files uses the sleight-of-hand type of writing. It's almost like they're showing us how Scully would see things and rationalize them scientifically so that almost everything Mulder sees one way, there's another more scientific way to see and explain it. So as we go through the X-Files, we as the viewer are being given a guide, so to speak, to see the X-Files through the lens of a skeptic or scientific approach or a believer or someone who wants to believe. So now let's head down to the chem lab and see what Agent Angela has for us for the chemistry between Mulder and Scully for 731. Hello, agents. This is Agent Angela. Mulder and Scully are separated, 
but of course still connected for much of 731. Unfortunately, their communication gets cut off temporarily when Mulder's cell phone slides off the top of the train car. They're then left to interface with others in their search for the truth in this episode. With the evildoers, with the victims, and with those who are neither completely guilty nor completely innocent. Most of the scenes in this episode are tense, but there is one that provides a little bit of lighthearted relief. When Agent Scully's having the chip from her neck analyzed, she does so with Agent Pendrell's assistance. They find out this tiny circular thing could possibly record a person's every last thought when implanted. Agent Pendrell said it all. Frightening. When Scully's on her way out, we get this little exchange. Well done, Agent Pendrell. Keep up the good work. Mm, thanks. Keep it up yourself. Keep it up yourself. What a dude. When she puts her hand on his, it's pretty obvious Agent Scully has an effect on sweet, somewhat nerdy Agent Pendrell. Can we blame him, in all honesty? I didn't think so either. But Mulder has no real competition here. Moving on, Mulder and Scully have their own separate interactions with the victims of the hybridization experiments. And we can see from the reactions on their faces just how insidious this secret government operation has been. They may not agree on the existence of extraterrestrials, but they both agree that real harm has been done to innocent people, regardless of who the culprits were. One of the tensest scenes between Mulder and Scully is when she tries to tell him that alien abduction is simply a myth and a smokescreen, one that's covering up acts just as frightening and terrible. Mulder does not want to hear this or believe it. In a characteristically Mulder-like display of stubbornness, he keeps going on the same course. One thing he clearly does not want to believe, that abductees have been taken aboard a secret railroad rather than aboard alien spacecrafts and subjected to horrific disease and radiation experiments at the hands of our own species, rather than at the hands of visitors from another part of the universe. Ironically, he sees the face of something clearly not human through a window in one of the train storage compartment doors, at the same moment Scully is telling him about the proof she has to the contrary. Although one's a skeptic and one's a believer, Mulder and Scully share the same strong sense of justice, and it's on display here in 731. The idea that people can be taken away, anytime, anywhere, and used as human lab rats is very hard to stomach. No matter who may have actually been behind it, Mulder and Scully want to get at the truth so this can be ended, so the same terrible tests won't happen to anyone else. These two can work the best together, even over cell phones, while locating a bomb with one hour, 41 minutes to go. This episode leaves us with plenty of unresolved questions, but it's yet another demonstration of how Mulder and Scully can only trust one another. Even when they collide verbally over what the truth is, that fact still doesn't change. In the end, they also have an unspoken, rather synchronistic agreement to trust X, who ends up carrying an unconscious Mulder away from an exploding train car, not long after Scully taped the X symbol over Mulder's window, in effect, saving Mulder's life. I don't need an apology for the lies. I, I don't care about the fictions they create to cover their crimes. I want them held accountable for what did happen. I want an apology for the truth. 
Until next time, this is Agent Angela. Counterintelligence Inside Information This is Agent Stone with X3.10731. Original air date December 1st, 1995. Written by Frank Spotnitz, directed by Rob Bowman. Whatever is on that train is not alien. 731 is the two-part conclusion from Nisi. We go from an alien autopsy to aliens on a train. Not unlike the Hitchcock movie, perhaps, but more of the secret human experimentation or victims of an inhuman project type. The name or meaning of the episode title, 731, is in reference to Unit 731 a group known as such to top Japanese army officials. During World War II, a special unit of the Japanese army experimented on prisoners of war. These prisoners were exposed to disease and extremes of temperature. They were operated on without anesthesia. Like their Nazi counterparts, they may have been given refuge in the United States to continue their experiments. The device in Scully's neck holds more than what X could ever tell her, and maybe everything she needs to know. Scully's chip seems to replicate the brain's memory function and duplicate mental processes. You could know a person's every thought, Scully muses. Radio Frequency Identification, or RFID, is the wireless non-contact use of radio frequency electromagnetic fields to transfer data for the purposes of automatically identifying and tracking tags attached to objects. The tags contain electronically stored information. Some tags are powered by and read at short ranges via magnetic fields. Others use a local power source such as a battery or else have no battery but collect energy from the interrogating EM field and then act as a passive transponder to emit microwaves or UHF radio waves. Battery-powered tags may operate at hundreds of meters. Unlike a barcode, the tag does not necessarily need to be within line of sight of the reader and may be embedded in the tracked object. RFID tags are used in many industries. An RFID tag attached to an automobile during production can be used to track its progress through the assembly line. Pharmaceuticals can be tracked through warehouses. Livestock and pets may have tags injected, allowing positive identification of the animal. On offshore oil and gas platforms, RFID tags are worn by personnel as a safety measure, allowing them to be located 24 hours a day and to be quickly found in emergencies. Since RFID tags can be attached to clothing, possessions, or even implanted within people, the possibility of reading personally linked information without consent has raised privacy concerns. 
Implantable RFID chips designed for animal tagging are now being used in humans. An early experiment with RFID implants was conducted by British professor of cybernetics Kevin Warwick, who implanted a chip in his arm in 1998. In 2004, Conrad Chase offered implanted chips in his nightclubs in Barcelona and Rotterdam to identify their VIP customers, who in turn use it to pay for drinks. The FDA in the U.S. has approved the use of RFID chips in humans. Some business establishments give customers the option of using an RFID-based tab to pay for service, such as the Baja Beach nightclub in Barcelona. This has provoked concerns in the privacy of individuals as they can potentially be tracked wherever they go by an identifier unique to them. There are concerns this could lead to abuse by an authoritarian government or lead to removal of freedoms. On July 22, 2006, Reuters reported that two hackers, Newitz and Westhues, at a conference in New York City showed that they could clone the RFID signal from a human implanted RFID chip showing that the chip is not hack-proof, as was previously claimed. Privacy advocates have protested against implantable RFID chips, warning of potential abuse. There is much controversy regarding human applications of this technology, and many conspiracy theories abound in relation to human applications, especially one of which is referred to as the mark of the beast in some religious circles. Surgery, even on a small scale, comes with its risks. The RFID chip implantation is no exception. According to David B. Smith, the author of Using Radio Frequency Identification Technology in Humans in the United States for Total Control, Smith gives the examples of health risks such as adverse tissue reaction, migration of implanted transponder, compromised information security, failure of implanted transponder, failure of insertion, failure of electronic scanner, electromagnetic interference, electrical hazards, magnetic resonance imaging incapability, and needle stick. Such risks exist for anyone undergoing an implantation procedure. From embedded microchips to RFID tracking, the cashless society rollout is going on in full force. With children thumb scamming to get their lunches and amusement park goers biometrically scanning for entry, we are being trained to use our biometric signatures as payment and identification. Trendy clubs around the globe have begun to surgically implant their VIP customers with microchips so that they can use to pay for their bar tabs, making it cool to get chipped. Now these hip and elite customers won't have to bring their wallet out with them to have a good time. Soon, RFID tags will be in everything from pharmaceuticals to clothing. Exclusive clothiers are already using the tags to recognize customers as they walk in the door from what they are wearing. This is a global system. Our passports will now be biometric, the information stored on an RFID chip. National ID legislation has been passed with the same Big Brother technology on board. With cameras, most biometric already on almost every street corner, and the ongoing media hurrah for all this wonderful technology that can quote-unquote protect us and make life easier, ask yourself, what is this all for? The globalists are setting up the beast system so that there is nowhere to hide. Cash itself will be traceable, so one day every transaction you make will be identifiable. You will always be on camera, and Big Brother will always know where you are and what you do. This section is just a small cross-section of the thousands of articles that we have come across related to the cashless society. Welcome to the cashless society.
Welcome to the New World Order. From a CNET article in 1994, advocates of technologies like radio frequency identification tags say their potentially life-saving benefits far outweigh any Orwellian concerns about privacy. RFID tags sewn into clothing or even embedded under people's skin could curb identity theft, help identify disaster victims, and improve medical care, they say. Critics, however, say such technologies would make it easier for government agencies to track a person's every movement and allow widespread invasion of privacy. Abuse could take countless other forms, including corporations surreptitiously identifying shoppers for relentless sales pitches. Critics also speculate about a day when people's possessions will be tagged, allowing nosy subway riders with the right technology to examine the contents of nearby purses and backpacks. Invasion of privacy is going to be impossible to avoid, said Catherine Albright, the founder and director of Consumers Against Supermarket Privacy Invasion and Numbering, or Caspian, a watchdog group created to monitor the use of data collected in the so-called loyalty programs used increasingly by supermarkets. Albright worries about a day when every physical item is registered to its owner. The overriding idea behind tagging people with chips whether through implants or wearable devices such as bracelets, is to improve identification and consequently tighten access to restricted information or physical areas. But on top of civil liberties and other policy issues, such technologies face visceral objections from many people who frown on the idea of being implanted with tags that can track them like migrating tuna. Complaints have led several companies to abandon plans to use RFID technologies in products, much less in human bodies. The concept of implanting chips for tracking purposes was introduced to the general public more than a decade ago when pet owners began using them to keep tabs on dogs and cats. The notion of embedding RFID tags in the human body, though, remained largely theoretical until September 11, 2001, the terror attacks, when a technology executive saw firefighters writing their badge numbers on their arms so that they could be identified in case they became disfigured or trapped. When such technologies are employed, they could even be more effective if implanted in the body. Supporters and critics both say RFID tags under the skin would invariably increase the volume and quality of personal data, with the benefit of, at the very least, reducing the margin of error for misidentification in the event of a disaster. The problem, detractors say, is that the vast quantities of accumulated data would be vulnerable to theft and abuse. They cite historical practices of retail establishments which for years have listened in on customer conversations and viewed consumer behavior on remote cameras to improve sales. Supermarkets routinely collect data about individual shoppers' purchases and buying habits through loyalty programs along with credit card and electronic banking transactions. Even random individuals could spy on those with tags because today's RFID technologies do not yet have the processing power to encrypt information. I don't see how you can get enough power into those things to encrypt data, said Whitfield Diffie, a fellow and security expert at Sun Microsystems. Some consumers have described scenarios in which a hacker could extract a person's identification number with an RFID reader, create a chip with the same number, and then impersonate them. But even if such a chip forgery were possible, alerts would probably be sounded as soon as the system detected that the same person was in two different places at once. Still, implanting RFID chips could vastly increase the potential for police surveillance of ordinary citizens. Conceivably, every wall socket could become an RFID reader that feeds into a government database.
Now this topic could be read about for hours and hours, but the bottom line is this. RFID, implantable human microchipping, smart meters, they're all extremely dangerous and very bad, and I urge everyone not to trust anyone or anything until you get the facts and check them yourself. So for now, I would say that this case is open. The final word on 731, apology has become policy. Apology is policy. What's out there for 731? This review comes from the Couch Potato blog, and the parts of it that stand out the most to me are as follows. Talking about the episode, it's quite painful to see, firstly, some deformed patients being experimented on, but then to kill them so savagely into one massive grave, like that has to be one of the most shocking and gruesome moments of the X-Files series. Both Mulder and Scully get a fair share of the truth, Scully gets to know about the purpose of that ship and who planted it. She is told that they weren't aliens, but Zama himself. Mulder gets the closest he ever did to the truth. I think this definitely changes a lot for both of them. It's still a total mystery if that was indeed an alien-human hybrid on the train, or was it just an experimented patient. I think it is implied that it was an alien-human hybrid. Well, I won't go into the details, because that would spoil the plot that is resolved in the coming seasons. But to see Mulder so close to something which is eventually taken away is always disheartening. I mean, that's how the show works, but still, how much more does he have to take? He never ever gives up, and that is the best thing about his character. The episode, well, not really different from the previous one, felt a bit out of the energy that these episodes usually have. The plot that is always stretched in these episodes eventually starts losing the momentum, and you see where this is going. What starts as a barn and what goes on to build so many layers upon layers ends on a dud, with not much explored, and then it's just left hanging there. But this was still an interesting episode, and even with the lack of much tension that should have been there due to the nature of this episode, it was worth it. Seeing that mass execution at the beginning is a sucker punch to the brain. I'm sure plenty of viewers have had the fleeting thoughts, not in America. I do agree that the episode trends into some very dark territory with this scene, and that part of the writing is instrumental in why The X-Files stays with us so deeply. It's so true that Mulder never gives up, even to the point of what some onlookers might consider insanity. But that Mulder stubbornness is such a big reason why he's a favorite character of so many fans, myself included. I think that 731 does have some definite tension, especially concerning the debated truth over whether Scully had been abducted by extraterrestrials or by a shadow government organization. As far as momentum, I think it often keeps the same pace on purpose to keep gradually unveiling more of this intricate X-Files mythology arc. 
one layer at a time. The next review excerpt comes from Agent Summer's blog, My Truth, and X-Files blog. It can be frustrating to be an X-Files fan. The very nature of the show's conspiracy, while highly entertaining, takes us through all kinds of twists and turns. Just when you think the show has revealed a huge secret, you're doubting its validity only a short time later as a cover-up for perhaps something else. This episode seems to be the case in point. Most of the scenes with Mulder in this episode take place on the train. Previously, we've seen the X-Files use a single location to create an isolated feel in numerous episodes, yet 731 seems to up the ante. There are the same feelings of fear as we saw in Ice. Just take a look at Mulder's reaction to the ringing cell phone. There's also moments waiting, much like Dodd-Calm, but 731 doesn't suffer from the same slow pace. Instead, the moments of downtime are nicely broken up by actions on Scully's end. Unlike all the isolation episodes before, there's a heightened sense of urgency. In the past, with the sense of urgency being tied to finding a cure, being rescued, or finding a way out, we have no real sense of exactly when the time would run out. With the seconds ticking down on the bomb, there is no way the time factor can be ignored. Excellent point about the time factor tied to a definite countdown, with the added suspense of what the final outcome will be, particularly if you're seeing this episode for the first time. Is Mulder going to disarm the bomb? Is he going to be able to get off that train car before it explodes? All this nick of time tension, along with the twists and turns of trying to uncover the real truth. It adds up to what I believe is quite a strong mythos episode, with story elements we'll be seeing again. Be sure to check out both of these reviews for yourself. I'll be posting their links up on the 731 show notes page at xfilestruth.com. Character profiles. But these aren't humans, Profiles in character. From the look of it, I'd say they were alien. This week's profile The First Elder, aka The Fat Man from The Syndicate, as portrayed by Don S. Williams. The First Elder is portrayed by Don S. Williams. He was a high ranking member of the conspiratorial shadowy syndicate the cabal of mysterious power brokers representing global interests that convenes at a private smoke-filled club on 46th Street in New York City. His exact position in the syndicate was unclear, especially in regard to the well-manicured man, though at times he seemed higher ranking than the smoking man. At a meeting with the cigarette smoking man to discuss the stolen MJ documents and whether 40 years of work had been compromised, the heavyset first elder inquired about the Mulder problem, and CSM assured him that Agent Mulder was dead and his body would not be recovered. The first elder replied that all pertinent parties should be informed that we may continue with our work. 
He also described the accidental shooting of Melissa Scully by the cigarette-smoking man's lackeys as a serious mistake, and cautioned him about the repercussions of an innocent woman being shot. While investigating the seemingly deserted Hansen's Disease Research Facility in Perky, West Virginia, Scully was met by the first elder while Mulder pursued evidence of an alien autopsy on a train. He told her that alien-looking creatures at the facility were in fact human subjects that had become victims of an inhuman project by Dr. Zama, a.k.a. Ishimaru. He told Scully that Zama, working on his own agenda, had conducted radiation tests on lepers, the homeless, and the insane. No matter how serious the situation, the Elder seldom gets angry, preferring to voice his views in a deliberate, cool fashion. The first Elder will return in subsequent Season 3 episodes and beyond, so continue to look for more of his increased presence in the future. From a 1998 article by Gina McIntyre, a few excerpts. Of all the Syndicate's shadowy movers and shakers, he just might be the most shadowy of them all. We know he is a man of great stature who belongs to a consortium of nameless cohorts. We know he plots and plans with these sinister men in darkly lit rooms where the air is heavy with the smell of cigarette smoke. He wears expensive suits and speaks in husky tones. He is ambiguous and formidable, pondering undiscovered secrets and the havoc they will wreak when revealed. But who the heck is he? The answer? Venerable Canadian actor Don S. Williams. Determining what sort of business the enigmatic character, known only as the First Elder, conducts is another matter. Williams says not even his friends or family are able to decipher the character's true nature or whether he is motivated by altruism or acrimony. The first couple of times I appeared, people knew me, always asked me, are you a good guy or a bad guy? And I quite honestly said, I don't know. Then they would start their speculations as to who I really was and what I was up to, which usually was pretty dark, Williams explains. And what does the actor think about his television alter ego? Well, he's a tad more optimistic about the Elder's secret agenda. I think that I have some objectives and that I have a mission, and people who are working toward a mission aren't necessarily bad guys. They're usually good guys. So maybe I'm a good guy, he reasons. A profound respect for the Canadian wilderness is something Williams has cultivated for years. In the late 60s, long before Thinking Green was trendy, Williams produced and directed an award-winning television documentary on the plight of the Canada Goose titled Nisku. To bring attention to the endangered species, Williams spent an entire year traipsing through parts of Canada and the United States to complete the film, which was named Best Canadian Television Film of 1970. It was very meaningful in that it was a departure from what I usually did, Williams explains. It was basically a wildlife documentary, which was a long ways away from doing the dramatic work I had been doing. It more closely resembled William's political endeavors, which had become something akin to a second career for him, an ideal occupation for a patriot. He first began working with Canada's Liberal Party as an idealistic teenager, and for more than four decades has devoted countless hours and incalculable energy to his volunteer efforts. 
The man who plays a mafioso-style member of the X-Files seemingly corrupt syndicate is a busy, well-connected politico in his spare time? Williams Down plays the ironic coincidence as merely that, a coincidence. I got involved in politics because somebody told me that if you're not willing to change things, you can't complain about the way they are, and that's why I'm still involved, he says. I find that change that I work for is within the party as well as within the government system. Being liberals, we don't always agree on everything, so we have to work some things out internally, too. I sometimes find myself at odds with the powers that be. But so what? But what just does an actor do to approach a character when he doesn't really know who that character could turn out to be? The seasoned thespian has that covered, too. Basically, I follow the advice of Spencer Tracy and do whatever the director tells me I have to do that because I'm not totally sure what's really going on, he explains. And after two years as the first elder, Williams is accustomed to the uncertainty that accompanies his role on The X-Files, a show that piqued his curiosity even before the pilot aired. Don S. Williams was born February 11, 1938 in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and currently, it seemed to be known that he is suffering from Parkinson's disease. He appeared in 14 episodes of The X-Files. He had a role in The Stepfather and one episode of Wise Guy. He is also an executive producer and a director of the series Beachcombers. Now, on a more personal note, there was always a sort of inside joke between a really really good friend of mine and myself in regards to his character and a line that he has. It's probably one of the greatest lines that's from the Fight the Future movie. I guess uh, my friend really enjoyed the way that I mimicked his voice, if you will, and it's probably, of course, not going to sound anything close to it, but it is still pretty funny. The line is, The virus is mutated. And, of course, that's followed by, Into what? And then, an extraterrestrial biological entity. So, if you know that sequence from the Fight the Future movie, anyway, it's probably more funny to me since it was an inside joke, but he does have a really cool speaking voice, and of course the, the tone that he brings to the character is awesome. So we will, of course, always love Don Williams as the First Elder. The Stone Gunman Media Report. La La Land Records and 20th Century Fox marks the 20th anniversary of the beloved television series The X-Files with this second four-CD volume of Mark Snow's original score to the award-winning landmark program. More than five hours of incredible X-Files music compiled from many episode favorites, have been assembled in this strikingly attractive collection, produced by Mark Snow, Nick Redman, and Mike Joff, and mastered by James Nelson. 
The 40-page CD booklet contains exclusive in-depth liner notes from film music writer Randall Larson and features comments from show creator Chris Carter and writer-producers Frank Spotnitz, Glenn Morgan, and James Wong. Limited to 3,000 units, the set's CD booklet and four-CD clamshell case are housed in a hardcover slipcase in the same fashion as our acclaimed sold-out first volume. The truth is in here. This is truly some of the most daring and enthralling music ever created for television. Limited edition of 3,000 units, including music from episodes such as Eve, Young at Heart, EBE, Tombs, Colony, Endgame, Softlight, Paperclip, The Blessing Way, Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose, Tulithakumai, Heronvolt, Home, Tunguska, Terma, Tempest Fugit, Redux, Redux 2, The Red and the Black, All Souls, Requiem, Existence, and Dead Alive, among many others. Order yours now before they too are sold out. Lots of files. Lots and lots of files. Files from X-Files. This is Agent Stone, and these are my X-Files origins. If you've seen our brief bios on the X-Files Truth website, that's basically a summation of how all the X-Files started for me in my life. It was shortly after the show began to air. I was in high school, so, you know, at that time, if you were a, a boy growing up in the 80s, you know, you, you moved out of your toys and cartoons and sitcoms and sports and girls and all those other high school extracurricular activities became a little bit more involved, but I was still very much into TV at the time, of course, and, uh, I was always into the idea of believing in UFOs, believing in extraterrestrials. My friends and I, as kids, would we would go uh, ghost busting the neighbors' houses, you know. And uh, of course, later on in, in my teens, late teens, early twenties, I had a really good friend, and we would consistently, you know, be listening to Art Bell coast to coast late at night. We drive out in the middle of nowhere under the stars hoping we could catch a glimpse of some flying saucer and uh, I myself even sort of had a, a close encounter if you will at one point in my life uh, that uh, could be verified by uh, a friend of mine that sort of to make a long story short was was there but wasn't there anyway uh, story for another time X-Files, uh, it aired, I guess my mom had seen it, she knew of course that 
shows such as that, you know, science fiction, always loving Star Wars and, you know, some Star Trek and other things that she thought that I would be really interested into it. And at some point in season one, I started watching it and obviously was instantly hooked. It's obviously this brilliant, amazing show, you know, from the acting and the stories, you know, it was so original at the time. I loved the music. Season two, of course, rolls around. Season three, probably from what I can recall at the time, I probably wasn't week for week faithful, you know, just being involved with wanting to be out all the time, you know, being a teenager and stuff. But definitely by the end of season three, first part of season four, I was obsessed. At this point, of course, I had graduated high school, I was out in the workforce, because I didn't go to college, I, I immediately went into a full-time work, and I can remember being obsessed with going to Blockbuster Video, or Blockbuster Music at the time, uh, whenever the uh, videos got released, you know, the, uh, when they came out in the box set three-pack videotapes with two episodes per collection. Uh, I remember, you know, in the, probably, I guess that would have been the later 90s, I was just so in love with those sets. I just thought they were so cool, you know, it was finally like getting like an official release as opposed to just taping them off of TV onto a VCR tape. Got the cool artwork, you know, the slipcase box. The, they had the, uh, the insert, like, little collector cards that came with them. I thought they were just so cool. But by season four, I was just fully immersed. I'm sure at that point, whatever episodes, you know, my mom had taped or I had taped, you know, I was just watching and watching over and over again and just getting as much X-Files knowledge as I could. And 1998, no, let me back up. It would have been 1990, uh, maybe six or seven. Whenever the Truth and the Light CD came out, you know, the first and obviously for decades, basically the only X-Files music that you could get your hands on, not counting the movie score for Fight the Future when it came out, I was obsessed with the truth and the light. It was just, to me, the most amazing thing I'd ever heard in my life. I loved listening to it just nonstop. I mean, it was ridiculous to the point that basically I worked full-time at a very large telecommunications company which basically really equated to just me sitting in a cubicle at a computer with a headset taking like phone calls from customers and like takeover calls from other clerks you know like if call in they're all mad and they say I want to talk to a manager you know they transfer them over to me or whatever so you know at this type of job you can wear basically whatever you want well I would get up in the morning I would get dressed I'd have slacks suit and tie I'd have my trench coat on I would listen to the truth and light on the way to work and just sort of immerse myself fantasy world in my head of the music and what it did for me in relation to how much I identified or wanted to identify with the show and just sort of I guess having that be my escape from the drone of the day and you know obviously I, I didn't have to dress up like that or anything but it was just a way for me to sort of 
you know, fake pretend that I'm this character in this world doing more important work than what I was actually doing. And to this day, even as much as um, as much as I love the the two box sets that are out, because we're finally able to get our hands on uh, just you know hours and hours of unedited music, the truth and the light is probably still my favorite, just because of how much it meant to me in those early sort of formidable years. Uh, I remember being at like a comic book convention buying a replica Fox Mulder FBI badge that I still have. I used to go to Barnes & Noble every week and I would buy just spend just ridiculous amounts of money on magazines that had Mulder and Scully or, you know, Jillian Anderson and David Duchovny on the cover even if the picture was like real small. I had just I would, you know, buy those $10, $12, $15 European magazines. You know, I had the, the famous Rolling Stone magazine. I guess it was in 1996 that I joined the X-Files fan club. As I've mentioned in my little bio, I still have my membership card. I have all the, the mailers that they sent me. I had this ridiculously awesome box that they sent that had like a... It was like a uh, autopsy kit with all sorts of like eight by ten color photos and just a lot of really cool stuff. I got an X Files Fight the Future magnet that's still on my refrigerator and whatever magazines. Which you know, if, you, if you're familiar with comic book boxes and their size and length, you know they also make like magazine style boxes. I mean, I probably had a full box full of nothing but ridiculous magazines for the X-Files and at some point I figured I better just whittle these down because it's no use keeping the entire magazine so I just have like this gigantic pile of clippings from all these weird magazines you know Cinescape and Cinema Fantastique and you know SFX and all these weird short-lived sci-fi magazines and you know import magazines and I've got this huge pile of cutouts that I've never done anything with but I would still like to someday put like a an X-Files scrapbook or something together I still have all the original um, X-Files magazine issues uh, and I've got a ton of other magazines that I kept whole that I didn't cut up of course I obsessed over buying all the uh you know, the movie figures, and, you know, I got all the uh, guidebooks. I've got all, I've got all the, the major book releases, uh, you know, the book of the Unexplains. Basically, if it's an official release, I pretty much got it. Uh, you know, I'm still collecting today. You know, I got the IDW Topps Comics reprints. I'm buying, you know, season 10 of the IDW Comics. And finally, after all these years, I had shared with my uh, other fellow agents here at X-Files Truth that after all these years, I was finally able to get my hands on the Imprisoned Smoking Alien Limited Edition statue. I was so happy to finally get that because that was just obviously one of the most cool-looking collectibles out there and one of the only real high-end collectibles. You know, there's also a Fluke Man out there I don't have, but uh, the... Imprisoned Smoking Alien is something I always wanted, and I finally got that. I saw X-Files Fight the Future in the movie in theaters three times when it came out. 
saw it with uh, my mom, I saw it with my best friend, and then I saw it with a girl. So, you know, it was pretty cool. I loved the movie. Just recently rewatched it again. It's still amazing. To try to not to extend this any longer, to sum it all up, basically, I might not have jumped on board with the pilot, but it wasn't too long after. I've been an X-Files fan ever since. I'm pretty much ridiculously obsessed at times. It is still one of my favorite things to watch, to listen to, to read about. And whenever I do, it, it always sort of takes me back to that, you know, that simpler time, you know, when for me, being at the age that I was then, you know, I, I didn't have too much to worry about, obviously, living at home, you know, just being out of high school, not having to worry with about all the problems in the world and being an adult and everything that comes with that. So I love the X-Files and I think the X-Files loves me back. So this is Agent Stone and these are my X-Files origins. On X-Files Truth, Mulder and Scully track an assassin responsible for a series of religiously motivated murders in which each of the victims displayed inexplicable wounds similar to the crucified Christ. Checked your email? I found these in my email this morning. And now the female with the emails, Agent Angela. Hey everyone, we got four short iTunes reviews from some listeners over in the UK. Very cool. And the first one's from Sirens, a great podcast. I've listened to a number of X Files podcasts, and I have to say this one is by far the best one out there. Bad Wolf 19 writes, I think this is a great podcast, giving in-depth reviews, actor profiles, what they are up to now, love the use of sound bites from the show, which gave me memories from watching the show, like Agent Chelsea's Chem Lab. It's a nice touch that other podcasts don't offer. If you're an X-Files fan, why not relive the show again? And let's hope for X-Files 3. Scoot 10 writes, Agent Shadow and the gang deliver a great podcast. Last but certainly not least, West Hammer 2013 added, The attention to detail the team put into this podcast cannot be faulted. Thank you for a massive achievement. 
First off, thanks so much to all of you. That's excellent to hear that the attention to detail we put into this is being recognized, and I'm really glad it shows through. To me, that's really awesome to hear from other listeners from other parts of the world. This is coming off the X-Files 20th anniversary, and it got me thinking, if someone had told my younger self 20 years ago that one day I'd be able to talk about what the show means to me and communicate with other fans and have it broadcast all over the world, I probably at that time would have thought they were crazy. I hope you'll all keep listening over there across the pond and tell the rest of your X-File friends about us too. Everyone else, be sure to look for us on iTunes, and we'd love to also hear your thoughts in our review section as well. We got an email from Lil. Hello, agents. Just finished listening to your latest podcast for Nisi and really enjoyed it. In particular, the alien autopsy and info on X slash Stephen Williams was excellent. It's always nice to know the background info on the episodes, and although it's common knowledge the autopsy presented on Fox was fake, the backstory was new to me. Loved how Stone incorporated the interview with Williams into his story as well. Have to agree with the other listener about Agent Angela's sound. Still seemed a little distant and quiet in this episode at times too, but I'm sure you're still working the bugs out on that. The information in Angela's segments was really good, but at times I do get the feeling she's reading a script instead of speaking to those of us who listen. Think if she relaxes a bit and lets her personality come through, she'd be perfect. Looking forward to more of your takes on the episodes in the future. Thanks again for all you do. Fair enough about the second part. I actually have been writing out a good majority of what I'm going to say. It's been helping me keep my thoughts organized and has also kept me from going off on a tangent. Anyone who knows me for a little while in real life would tell you I am more than capable of doing that. I'm actually not writing out much for this segment, and I guess doing all that did make me sound a little scripted. I'll work on being better about that. Promise. I didn't know that backstory either about the alien autopsy video. I do remember when it was on the Fox network, and I remember the chatter that it generated for a little while at the time. It was pretty obvious that it was fake pretty quickly, so I didn't give it all that much attention. I just turned my focus back to what was going on in the latest X-Files episode, because that was way more exciting. What do the rest of you guys think? Let us know on our website, xfilestruth.com, on our Facebook page, or by emailing us at xfilestruth at live.com. We'd love to hear from you. A few more thoughts on 731. I don't think I mentioned it earlier, but we got another 1013 reference in 731. It's the first four numbers of the exit code as Mulder's trying to leave the train. Also last episode, 
You may have noticed I tried to take you on a journey through one of Mark Snow's songs from his X-Files Volume 1 release called Rail Song. The song had so many different parts to it, so I played different parts between each segment. And one thing I really liked about that song is near the end you can hear the pace just slightly build up to add some tension and suspense. It's pretty cool. This episode I did the same thing with another song from that album called Derailed. And if you like Mark Snow's music, here's some suggestions. You've probably heard most of them before, but um, buy X-Files Volume 1 and 2 if you can. I think 1 may be out of print, but you can get it somewhere. It's out there. Uh, both albums are great, and they're filled with many hours of music. Another way you can do, I haven't suggested it before, but if you download Pandora, it's an app for your phone if you don't know what it is. It's so you can listen to free music. You can also bookmark the website and use it on your computer and create a Mark Snow station. And then Pandora will play Mark Snow music and other musicians and bands similar to that style. And you can always listen to my Snow Tracks podcast on iTunes or at the website. The episodes are listed on the right side of the page. Don't forget... If you want to be part of the Files from X-Files segment, just send in an MP3 of yourself talking about how you became an X-Files fan or any other X-Files related topic and attach it to an email. Send it to us at xfilestruth@live.com. And if you'd rather have one of us read your story instead of you recording it, just write out your story and email it to us and tell us which agent you'd like to have read your uh, story for the podcast. And then one of us will do it. To see what songs and artists we used on today's show and how they're related to the episode, just go to xfilestruth.com and while you're there, leave a comment. And you can also leave any song requests that you think might relate to X-Files episodes for future episodes. If you run a website and you'd like to become an affiliate with X-Files Truth, just email us your banner and a link to your site and we'll list you on our affiliates page. And always the best way to support us is just leave a quick review at iTunes. Even two or three words really does make a big difference. So just launch iTunes and type in XFT in the search field and we're right down there. Usually the the first show listed in the podcast section. Well, that's it for 731, an excellent episode, and we hope to see you next month for Revelations. that one puppies I made this 20th century box I love the X-Files and I think the X-Files loves me back the virus is mutated into what an extraterrestrial biological entity
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.